When I was a young child, I remember before I went into kindergarten and preschool being tested. Now, when I say I was tested, my teacher did not hand me a pencil and a piece of paper and a or even ask me questions to write down answers to anything. I wasn't able to really do that at that time. I was given a box of shapes and colors and sizes, different things, like red triangles and blue circles, purple rectangles, etc. Now, I was given this box, and the teacher told me that she was going to dump this box on the floor, Okay. Uh, And then when she did that, she would say, go. And on go, my responsibility was to find all the blue circles and put them together in one place. And then to find all the red triangles and put them together in one place. And then all of the purple rectangles and to put them together in one place and to go as fast as I could. I said, okay. And so she did. She dumped out the box and I began to separate them by color and shape. And size. Now, I thought that it was just something fun to do. I didn't know that it was actually a test, and so I just did it. I had no idea whether I did good on it or bad on it. Nonetheless, that's what I did. Now, it's very possible that as a child, you may have done the very same thing that I did, because this is called a cognitive development test. It is a test that is still done today with children to help us understand how we think and function and process. So it has to do with our visual perception of things. It has to do with our thinking skills. It has to do with our hand-eye coordination, being able to see the differences in things. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it quite interesting that at an early age, we learn very quickly in school to tell the differences between things, whether it's objects and colors and shapes and sizes But then we're taught in this particular test to separate them and to put all the things that are the same in the same spot and to keep that separately from those things that should be over here and those things that should be over here. Now, I don't know if this test somehow messed with me as a child indirectly because I find myself, even as an adult, doing that when I do the laundry. So if you come into my house and you come into my closet, you will find all the t-shirts hanging together, right? All the sweatshirts hanging together, all the dress shirts hanging together, because my mind is so left-brained that that's, everything has its rightful place, right? I don't know if you're like that. Uh, some of you may say, that's craziness. I just hope that I can get it in the closet and it gets there and it's not on the floor. Uh, but that's the way my brain thinks. Everything has its rightful place. As we gather together and we continue our sermon series on the book of Ephesians, Paul has something to say about this for the church in Ephesus as he tries to teach them to live in the ways of Jesus. In fact, he begins by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. This is what I call a therefore statement, which means that Paul is saying essentially, hey, I've taught you something here, therefore this is how you are to live. And so if you were here last week or you watched online last week, Steve preached on Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. And he said this, this is what Paul said, he said, being rooted and established in love that we may have power 
together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, okay, church, since you are rooted in God's love and truly understand the radical heights and the depths and the width of God's love for you, therefore, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Paul's telling the Ephesians that it's not enough to know and experience the radical love of God in their lives, but it must also be lived out. He goes on to say that we must be completely humble, gentle, and patient, and bearing with one another in love. We are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a no-brainer for the church, right? I mean, come on, this is what the church is supposed to do and to be. We're supposed to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with one another in love. We're supposed to love each other as Jesus loves us. So why is it that Paul is having to tell them this? Well, the short answer is that there's no perfect church. The church is made up of people who are sinners saved by grace, and yet at the same time are sinners. And we're made up of diverse people in the church, people who come from different backgrounds and socioeconomic circles and from different nationalities and speak different languages, different genders, different skin colors. In Ephesus, the church was mostly comprised of Gentiles, but there were also Jews who were mixed into those churches, and that was a pretty radical thing for Jews and Gentiles to, to worship together not long after Jesus because they were supposed to stay separated from one another. They weren't supposed to like one another. Needless to say, people are people, and sometimes we can focus more on what separates us from one another than on what unites us together. That's why Paul says this. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul emphasizes our calling, doesn't he? He starts by saying that we should live a life that's worthy of the calling. And then he reminds us that we are part of one body and spirit just as we were called, okay? We use this term in the church all the time, that we are called by God. And essentially, this is God's invitation to us to be in His presence and to follow His lead. And being called means that we have been chosen by God, okay? And when we respond to this call, we seek to be obedient to God in our lives. The late pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson, whom some of you may know because you've read the Message Bible, he translated the Bible into the Message, He says this about calling from God. He says, it gives us a destination, determines what we do, shapes our behavior, and forms a coherent life. In fact, if you want to get real down into the weeds, the root word for the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia, that root word, that verb, means to call. So when we talk about the church in the New Testament, the ecclesia of God, the church is literally called out by God to be different. To be different. And that difference is determined by the God that we follow, 
together. So Paul is gently reminding the church of its true calling, that we are called by the same God. In fact, Paul is so emphatic about this that he repeats himself seven times by using the simple word, one. One. He says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. What is Paul trying to get to? Well, he's trying to tell the church, hey, God has designed us to be one, united by Christ, which is by God's design for us. But the church, he knows, can so often get it wrong. Think about it. Now, we affirm one church in the world. And when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say the Catholic Church, not because we're talking about the Holy Catholic Church in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic itself means universal. So we're saying that the body of Christ in the world is universal. We're all united by faith in Jesus Christ. But so often we have a tendency to narrowly focus uh, our sense of church related on the particular body that we are a part of. And for us, that would be First Presbyterian Church of Boone. But the church sometimes can also be competitive with one another. Sometimes we argue about who's more theologically correct and uh, whose worship style is really the best. And we compete for members by marketing ourselves so that others will come to our church and join our church. And oftentimes we can point out the differences between us denominationally that kind of separate who we are and what we believe in our identity. And when we do these things, oftentimes we really can't say that we are one in that regard, can we? Because even the church can focus more on what separates us from one another, even as we seek to be faithful in sharing Jesus. But the church can also be infiltrated with worldly things, leading us to focus on our differences. We can see and separate people based on their skin color or their gender, their nationality, maybe their sexuality, their political preference, and even based on one's faith or their lack of it. It's kind of just like the cognitive development test, isn't it? We learn to see people by their differences, how different they are from us. And then we have a tendency to separate ourselves from them so that we don't co-mingle. Unfortunately, America did this with slavery and segregation. Blacks and whites were separated in schools, in church, water fountains, in public places. We pushed our black brothers and sisters out and said it was fine for them to do the same things we do as long as they did it together by themselves. Unfortunately, even white Christians supported these efforts. Even the churches supported this. Even Presbyterians supported slavery. That's a black eye on us. Even this sense of segregation, separation, it sends to send a message to us. Let's just keep everyone in their own space so that they don't bother one another. Keep all the blue circles over here and the red triangles over here and the purple rectangles over here. But we know that this led to a superiority and power over, one of the, uh, over the other. 
And that's what simple humans have a tendency to do. We think that we are better than others, and so we try to elevate ourselves above them. And so we find reasons to separate and to segregate. And now, maybe we've overcome a lot of that. We still struggle with it in our country, but there's all kinds of other ways in which we do this together. I hear people all the time, a Democrat can't be a true Christian, a Republican can't be a true Christian. We assume the worst in others. They don't think like us, or vote with us. Let's put those blue circles over here, and let's keep those red triangles over here. That's what we do. Even yesterday, we remembered and commemorated 20 years since September 11th. Horrible day for our country. And in some ways, if you think about it, it was the last time that this nation truly united together over something. We saw people on both sides of the aisles gathering together, praying for our country, working together. And yet even 20 years later, there are many who still assume that every Middle Easterner is a terrorist. I've recently heard Christians voice anger that refugees from Afghanistan are coming into our country. I've heard things like, why are we letting terrorists into our country? They aren't Christian. They'll just use our tax money. Paul says, wait a minute. Be humble, church. Be gentle, church. Be patient church. So many Christians are harsh, arrogant, and impatient. Why do we assume the worst in others? What if someone said that all Christians blow up abortion clinics? Would that be true? No. The truth is, what a few radicals do is not indicative of the whole. That's not the truth. We have this fear of the other, those who are different from us. We have this reason to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. And even Christians make judgments about who is righteous and who is unrighteous, and we like to separate ourselves like sheep and goats. And yet, ultimately, the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus dealt with that all the time with the Pharisees. But as we look back to Paul's words... The simple reality, it comes down to one word. One. One. One God who creates all people. One God who loves all people. One God who dies for all people. One God who invites all people to follow. Paul says it's really very simple. It all comes down to one God in three persons. And as the church, we call that the Holy Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one. A holy mystery. And I wish I could explain to you how all that works, but I'd be a liar in the church if I told you that. But that's what we affirm as people in the church. And the interesting thing about the Holy Trinity is that they are one. (laughs) One. United in every decision and in God's will together. They are not divisible in any way. They always work together as one, and they're always seeking us. They're one. And Jesus acknowledges this in his last recorded prayer before he was crucified. And he prays first for his disciples. We didn't read that part. But then he goes on to pray for everyone else that the disciples' message might reach. And he says, my prayer is not for them, the disciples, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer is about unity. The church being one as God is one. We even affirm this in marriage, do we not, in the church? That the two shall become one flesh. That is because we understand the Trinity rightly. That God is one and that we become one and that we are designed to be like God in that respect. Paul says that this is about the unity of our faith becoming mature, he says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, you know, friends, that this world is full of hate and division. We've learned very well how to separate ourselves from one another, and truthfully, we begin doing this as little children, and then we become teenagers, and we do it meaner, and then we become adults, and we still do it. We pick and choose who we hang out with, sometimes purposely choosing to be with people who think and act and look like us. And it's far easier for us to point out our differences. In fact, that's kind of how the way the world works. But Paul says, this is immaturity. (laughs) It's immaturity for the church. Being infants in the faith that are being tossed back and forth like waves because of deceitful scheming by lies, by false teachings that would tell us that that's what we're supposed to do. That somehow we can't commingle with people who are different from us. And this is exactly what's going on in the church in Ephesus. The Gentiles and the Jews who are kind of trying to figure this thing out. And Are we supposed to really be together in church together? We should worship together? Are you really Jewish? I mean, we're all Christian here, but did you become a Jew in order to be Christian? Have you followed the food regulations and the law? Have you become circumcised men uh, like we're supposed to? And Paul says, no, that's not what matters. What matters is that Jesus has united us together. Stop that. We are one. But we want to keep finding ways to say, no, you're not just like me. We can't be together. This is the world that we live in. Every single day, hate speech has become the norm for us. A public health crisis can become politicized. And where our attitude so often is about us versus them. And so often we ignore Jesus who calls us to love and pray for our enemies I don't like that part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's too hard. We refuse to follow the ways of Jesus who welcomed the unrighteous with grace. We refuse to exercise the forgiveness of Jesus holding on to our grudges, keeping people below us and indebted to us. But I have to tell you, church, this is not what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. According to Paul, Christ is the head of the church. And as the head... Christ must move the body towards true maturity. And Paul says it very clearly. He says, from him, Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. One body, one spirit, one hope, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You see, the kingdom of heaven is like a box of shapes and colors and different things, like this cognitive development test I took. It's kind of just like that box. Everything's different and unique and different because God created us different and unique. That box isn't meant to be poured out so that every piece can then be moved and put with only the like pieces that are in that box. No, it's meant to be poured out as it is, as one big, diverse, yet united family of faith. And in that box, there isn't a dominant color. And in that box, there's not a less valuable piece. Because each piece is perfectly made by its creator with purpose to help build up the whole box. So it is in the kingdom of heaven. And it's Jesus who teaches his disciples to pray this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, he teaches us to pray for thy kingdom come, God's kingdom to come, thy will be done on, on what? Earth, as it is where? In heaven. Huh, interesting. Here, as it is there. Ecclesia, church, called out. You're called out. Therefore, you are called, urged by Paul to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received, not to divide ourselves and to prevent ourselves from being the body of Christ to those who are different from us, but to extend the absolute love and radical grace of Jesus Christ to everybody, to everybody, regardless of their color or shape or size. Our calling, according to Eugene Peterson, it determines our destination. It determines what we do, and it shapes how we do things, our behavior. And so as we look to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, we respond appropriately to those who are here among us. We look to heaven in order to figure out how we're to live on earth. That means that we welcome refugees into our community. We're looking for peace and a chance to raise their children in a safe place just like we want for our kids. And it views them not as a threat, but as an opportunity to share the good news of Christ with them in the ways that we live as the body of Christ. What an opportunity for Christians. It also means that we welcome our political adversaries, regardless of our differences. I mean, we're called to have a relationship with them based on love and not trying to force them to convert to our own ideals. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything, but it bears witness that we can work together and that we can love Christ together regardless of our votes and our differences. You see, we're called out as Christ's church, and we are called to live a life worthy of that calling. This means that we have work to do. It means that we must see as Jesus sees us, that we must love as Jesus loves us. It kind of goes back to Paul's prayer that Steve preached on last week, knowing God's love so that we may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Jesus was filled with the full 
fullness of the full measure of God, and we too must pray that God would fill us with the fullness of God so that we may truly be one church that rightly bears witness to our Lord and Savior. But even before Paul, it goes back to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, I have given them the glory, that's you, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith and one baptism and one God and Father in all and through all. One. Jesus' prayer is that we might be one. And here's the good news. We certainly can, with God's help. And so today, my friends, my prayer for us, Paul's prayer, Jesus' prayer, your pastor's prayer, (laughs) is that we could live in to those prayers prayed before us, that we might be united, that we may be one together, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus for all of us. They may know what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. And in doing so, they may truly know God's love. May we be one church. May it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.